Well, I may not have to introduce to many of you our, uh, our speaker this morning. Uh, Pastor Dina Horn uh, was a part of All Shores for a good 15, long while. 14 years and then uh, left with her husband Dave to go to Europe to oversee the national church and all of our missionaries in Europe with Global Partners. She is now back. Her and, her and Dave are back and are a part of All Shores uh, but uh, she is still with Global Partners. She is one of our partners that we support, and she is the director of the next uh, next ministry or next developer. What, what words do I want to use? Well, I'm the next developer for our next internship program. So it's next. Um, <laughs> but I actually you have did more better in the first service. I did. I did. <laughs> Which is, yeah. Anyway. Um, Moving on. Yeah, don't get me off on a tangent. So <laughs> she, she works with the young adults to do a cross-cultural immersion experience, and we have had three individuals from our church go through that. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is serving now as an uh, assistant pastor at a church. Another one is serving in a cross-cultural ministry with Global Partners. Uh, and we have another uh, individual from our church who's going to be going. So it's a great program. Love what's happening. Love Dina. Give her a hand. Oh, thanks, Dad. It's, it's, so, it's been so good to be back, but I just have to say, so when we were here, Dave, Dave was the outreach pastor, my husband, and, um, and then Dad became the outreach pastor when we left to go serve in Europe, and that could have been an awkward thing, right? Um, but Dad has just been a friend a great supporter. I'm so thankful to be a part of this church and just for the ways that All Shores has been such a great encouragement to us through the years. So yes, we're back. And um, let me give a big shout out to all my Muskegon people. Uh, they, we attend the, oh, we've got some here in person, yay. Um, so we attend the Muskegon campus, but it's really fun to be back here in Spring Lake as well. Well, my dad grew up on a farm in central Kansas, and his dad, my grandfather, was a dedicated diary keeper. He kept a daily diary of maybe three or four or five sentences every day for decades. And a while back, my cousin compiled all of those diaries into a book. That book is a little boring to read, but... Um, there are some gems, uh, but mixed in with a lot of weather reports, and uh, here's what's happening in the church and our family. But it, it's a really great look into um, this farmer and construction um, guy in the early 1900s. Well, you can just imagine my dad being very inspired by this example of keeping a daily diary. So... Um, I was thrilled when I discovered that my dad had a diary. Now, I wish you could see, well, my dad actually became a businessman. He started a construction company building concrete roads and bridges in Kansas, and he then got involved in politics. He's married. He's got um, seven kids. I'm the youngest. And I just, I wish I could show you all, but can you see this diary? He wasn't so good. He didn't do quite, oh, we're into June, still nothing. Um, oh, September came, okay, end of September, here we go. So there was obviously at some point where my dad was like, man, I really should be dying, you know, I should write down what I'm doing, you know, my dad set me this great example. So the thing that's amazing here is that he only kept five days 
of a diary the week before he died. Last words really matter. And we've been in a series focusing on the last words of Jesus as he hung on the cross. So let's lean in to what Jesus would have us learn today from his words, I'm thirsty. So John 19, verses 28 and 29. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. So let's break down these verses. Some powerful phrases here. And the New Living translates this first phrase, knowing everything that had now been finished, as Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. Well, what was Jesus' mission? What was this everything referring to? Well, Jesus was the Messiah, the liberator, the one sent to set us free. The anticipation of a Messiah, one who delivers God's people, that liberator, that idea grew throughout the entire Old Testament as more and more promises were delivered from God through his prophets. And Jesus obeyed God the Father in this call on his life. Isn't that a wild thought? Jesus obeyed? Really? He submitted to the will of the Father. Well, throughout the book of John, Jesus' obedience is emphasized. So here are just a few verses. These are the words of Jesus. John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 5, 30. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John 15, 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. Jesus obeyed the father even to the point of death on a cross. The cross was a means to inflict the most amount of pain possible. Basically, a method of torture. The word we use, excruciating, was invented to describe torture. It, it's it, to describe something like a crucifixion. It literally means out of the cross, excruciating. To the Romans, crucifixion wasn't simply eliminating enemies. It was degrading and brutal and humiliating. We can do with you what we want, an ultimate power move. So why in the world would Jesus submit himself to this? Well, he was confident in the call of God the Father on his life to be the Messiah, literally the anointed one or the chosen one. He got his mission. He freed us from the weight of sin. He made a way for justice and peace. He knew that he was accomplishing the Father's mission. 
So later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Well, one specific verse that was fulfilled is from Psalm 69:21, which says, they gave me sour wine for my thirst. This sour wine, translated in this version as wine vinegar, was just what the soldiers had, just what they had lying around. It was cheap wine for the common people. So this isn't vinegar in the modern day sense, because that's gross. It was what the soldiers had brought along to have refreshment throughout the day, a refreshing drink to sustain them. And at the declaration of Christ's thirst, the soldiers raised a sponge soaked in sour wine to Jesus' lips, and they affixed that sponge to a hyssop branch, which is an interesting detail. Certainly John is remembering back to the Exodus. You see, the hyssop branch is what the Israelites used to sprinkle the blood over the doorway of their homes on that very first Passover to tell the angel of death, pass over this home. In faith, I put this blood over the door. It was a symbol throughout the scripture associated with purification and sacrifices in the temple. And no doubt John is making this illusion that Jesus is to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Earlier, on his way to the cross, Jesus had been offered wine mixed with myrrh or gall as an act of compassion to deaden his pain, to alleviate the weight of suffering. But Jesus spit it out. He drank the whole cup of suffering. He consciously and willfully endured the pain. Jesus was experiencing something beyond physical thirst. The isolation and pain of abandonment by his own father shows a deep spiritual thirst as well. Well, let's idea, explore this idea of thirst. We need to understand that Jesus' thirst reveals his humanity. Jesus is not Clark Kent. Jesus was fully human. So Clark Kent is the alter ego of Superman, the great superhero. And when he changed in his body to become this superhero guy, he would disguise himself as Clark Kent to be human, to act human. But Jesus was fully human. There was no acting of it. He experienced, just like we do, the life of being human. The gospel story seems to focus on this sweaty, suffering, bloody human being from his birth to his death. I remember being very pregnant one Easter, and I was singing in an Easter pageant back when churches used to do that kind of thing. And right in front of me was this young Mary, and she was holding a real live infant as baby Jesus. And I was overcome. Thankfully, it was a dress rehearsal. Because I, I just, I was so overcome by this thought that God would come as a baby in complete vulnerability, completely needing his mother and his father. He didn't come in power. He came in this 
vulnerable way. And I could not sing the words or some song about the incarnation. I don't even know what it is now. But I could not, I, I just couldn't even imagine that God would do this. He was totally dependent. The story of Jesus' life is so human. It was the man Jesus who lived and worked, worked and sweat and ate and drank. He was born of a real woman. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He became exhausted. And of course, he died. Jesus had emotions. He was angry. He loved. He was a man of sorrows. Last week, Peter talked about the waves of Christ's suffering and struggle and the reality of Jesus being forsaken by God the Father. Heartache, pain, devastation. Handel's Messiah was originally performed at Easter time in England over 250 years ago. And when Dave and I were serving in missionaries, as missionaries in Europe with Global Partners, we had the opportunity to go to this gorgeous hall. I know, rough life in Vienna. The music in this golden hall, it was so beautiful. And maybe listening to an entire two and a half hour performance isn't your cup of tea, but let me encourage you to consider listening to the Messiah or finding it on YouTube as part of your Lenten worship. The entire text is scripture. And there's three parts. The first prophesies the birth of Jesus. So currently, we more typically listen to or hear a performance of the Messiah at Christmas time. That first part talks about the birth of Jesus. The second part talks about and, and exalts, or it prophesies, oh, sorry. The second part exalts his sacrifice for humankind. This time, this season of Lent. So, okay, if you can't do the whole thing, listen to the second part. And find the words so you can follow along. And the final section heralds his resurrection. So wait to listen to that part till Easter. That's part of why I've loved this this sermon series is that we're sitting in this time. We're not rushing to the resurrection. We're recognizing. And as I was preparing to attend that concert, I listened to the, um, to the recording over and over again on my way to German class on the U-Bahn. My headphones in, and there was a day when I... It, it, Again, I had this moment of being struck by the thought that Jesus was the suffering servant. I heard these lines. He was despised, despised and rejected, rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Well, the disciples really struggled to understand this. Their expectation of this liberator Messiah was not matching the suffering servant in their presence. Remember when Jesus met the woman at the well? The disciples didn't really get that interaction with her either. Jesus put himself in the path of a vulnerable woman and met her in vulnerability. He asked, please, Give me a drink, water, and thirst again. 
In the end, he offered himself as the living water to meet her thirst. You know, thirst was a very common experience in that day, that desert life, much more than we experience it now. Her life revolved around this need to get water, but that physical thirst was just the surface of the thirst she had. Some people assume this woman was bad. She is perhaps viewed as the the bad Samaritan in contrast to the good Samaritan parable that Jesus shared. She certainly had a troubled life. But in that time, men could divorce women, not the other way around. Scholars looked to this woman as someone whom wrong had been done to. This woman was coping with a pattern of abandonment. She, yeah, indeed, she had had five husbands, and either they died or they divorced her, so she experienced loss over and over and over and over and over. She was just trying to survive. Women didn't have choices then. When did we ever hear about a man caught in adultery? She had been used and was not perfect, not a shining member of the community. Some speculate that she came to the well at noon that day to avoid being with the other women. She was thirsty for far more than well water. She was longing for belonging and security and love. Well, what are the ways we try to satisfy our thirst? The end. (laughs) Satisfying our thirst, Jesus is the one that can purely do that. But we many times try to take care of it on our own, to keep things up at the surface. Sometimes we're afraid to look at what's really going on down below when we feel some kind of longing or thirst in our lives. Well, we entertain. Some people plan a vacation while they're on vacation. This, like, search for fun. (coughs) Dave Horn. (coughs) (laughs) Thanks for making me have fun, honey. And let's not get self-righteous about all the people who are on spring break right now. But sometimes there's this just need, this need for more, this if I get more, if if I'm just, it's insatiable, it's, it's gluttony. Can't stop, won't stop. Has anybody ever had the, uh, would you like to keep watching screen come up on Netflix? Yeah. We entertain. We numb. I have a friend who um, was struggling with depression, and she went to uh, counseling and shared with me how she gained some skills to be able to identify the triggers that when she was gaming, to to determine if she was gaming for fun or to numb. Sometimes uh, the overuse of alcohol or weed or drugs or even food can be a way that we try to just fill that thirst. We're afraid to go deeper and see what's really going on. We distract. I'm so busy. It's been really hard to not get sucked back into busy, busy life in, in, back living in the U.S. Um, when we were in Austria, one of the practices in the culture there is that most stores are closed, even grocery stores are closed on Sunday. 
Now, that's not the only way to live your life, but coming back and having this 24-7 life, busy, busy, we don't have that external way of slowing down. Sundays were a day to be with family, to get out in nature, and now it can just be one more day. It's tough with children. The culture here is just so full and busy. Busyness can be a way to just not have to cope. So what's your go-to move? I challenge you to examine yourself and look at these ways or other ways that we avoid looking at our deeper emotional lives. You know, we're rarely thirsty these days with our ubiquitous water bottles and drinking fountains and giant refrigerators. And living cross-culturally removes a lot of the ways that we insulate ourselves from feeling any need. You can't speak the language. You don't know how systems work. You're trying to figure out what are these unspoken values in your new community. It's a vulnerable feeling. You really begin to feel your thirst for being known, for having value, for having connection. Those aren't bad things, but if we're always numbing ourselves or distracting ourselves or entertaining ourselves, we don't feel that deeper longing. In some ways, we need to feel our thirst more and not reach for the quick fix. What does our thirst indicate? What are we deeply longing for? We need to tune in to our thirst. Get curious. What's going on when I feel my emotions? My most accessible emotion is anger. And I had a friend help me understand that when you feel anger, something you value is at stake. And that has been a super helpful question for me to say, I'm so angry right now. But to do the work to say, what, what am I? Oh, I don't feel the love that I'm wanting to feel. Oh, how, what can I do? You know, it, it helps you get to the things below. If you go through a divorce, you feel the thirst. When you experience loss, you feel your thirst. If you experience rejection in a relationship, you feel the thirst. I dare say, if you have teenagers, you're feeling the thirst. Jesus in his humanity can identify with you. He is acquainted with grief. And in that place of need, Jesus meets us there. That's when we feel our thirst for something more. The point isn't to never be thirsty again, but to satisfy our thirst with the life Jesus offers. I hate happy endings in books and movies. When everything is tied up so nicely, it just irritates me. I guess I'm too much of a cynic, or maybe I should say I'm a pragmatist. That's a better word. It's just not the way the world works. But I don't have to be cynical. I can be honest. I don't have to pretend. We don't have to put on a fake Christian exterior. So here's some good news. Jesus didn't come just to save your soul. He came to satisfy your thirst. 
Dad's diary talks a lot about work and church and family in those final days. He mentions in bed by 11 with my lover. What do you think that means? This is after seven kids, folks. But he also says this. Bathe with three little ones. Great investment. Enjoyable time of fellowship. That's me. I was four years old. I don't have a lot of memories of my parents, so when I first read this, I wept. My dad spent time with me. He loved me. So it makes sense that some of my lifelong thirsts after the loss of my parents at such a young age would be to be known and loved by my family, to have the affirmation of others, to have everything all together and be successful like my dad. I have to confess, I haven't always looked to Jesus to meet those thirsts. My go-to thirst quencher is distract to be busy so that I don't have to feel the loss. A few years ago, during an intense season of thirst, I had, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but I'll just use the word, I had kind of a vision. I'd really been struggling with any kind of alone time with God or reading my Bible or having these individual times of prayer, but I went to church every week. And on those Sundays when we would sing any song, basically, I would just weep. And I just, it was a moment of being in a corporate place where I sang those lyrics in just faith because it was hard for me to say, yes, I'm all in. But it was like, I hope that's true. But I had a lot of shame and self-condemnation Because I wasn't really like, you know, on my own having that, which is kind of a funny thing. So I had this vision. And Jesus wasn't sitting across the room from me with his arms like this look of disappointment on his face. Oh, Dina. No. He was next to me on the couch, his arm on the back of the couch open body toward me, saying, Dina, I see you. I love you. I am acquainted with grief. And he met me in that moment and love and compassion. Easter is more than the resurrection. Jesus satisfies our thirst. It's good news Jesus meets us in our most desperate place. Jesus satisfying our thirst means that he meets us in the deepest longings of our souls. It's living water so that our thirst is always satisfied. Let's pray. God, help us to have the courage to be honest with you about the ways that we try to satisfy our own thirst. We distract, we numb, we entertain. 
Help us to have the courage to look deeper and to identify that we long to be seen and known and loved and that you, the living water, the never-ending stream, will meet us and satisfy our thirst. In Jesus' name, amen.